Peter. Look at chapter 2 of 1 Peter with me. We're going to start in verse 4 and go through verse 12 together. Okay, so this is 1 Peter chapter 2 starting in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scriptures it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul and live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As you are, we do have Kingdom Kids today, which is our ministry for four-year-old kiddos through second graders. This is a chance for them to learn and to worship on their level. So they're going to gather over here. Parents, if your kids have never participated before, you'll want to go with them and get them registered for Kingdom Kids. They're going to go behind the sanctuary here, and they're going to meet in the downstairs of our education building right next door. So just be aware of that. So if you need to pick them up early, you have to push that button in the camera. You have to look in the camera, show your, who you are, who you say you are, and then they'll let you in. Uh, and then they can be picked up, of course, after service this morning. I want to pause with you and pray with you as we take a look at this incredible letter, 1 Peter. So if you would, let's pray together. Father God, we come into this place today from many different walks of life, going through different things, different challenges. What unites us, I think, almost universally is we're here because we want to hear from you. And God, I pray that we would. I pray that as we open your word here this morning that we would be hungry for you. We would desire you. But God, you know us, and you know that we get distracted, and we get confused even. We, we set you aside for lesser things. God, in that, I pray you would convict us and show us where we're wrong and, and invite us because of your kindness. It is your kindness that leads us to repentance, as your word says. That we might be transformed day by day to be more like Christ to bring you more glory, that others may see you more clearly in us, that they may come to worship you as we do. In all this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Well, one question I want to put before you this morning is who are you? Who are you? If you're in a conversation with someone and you're getting to know them, often how we see ourselves is often the first things we talk about, right? Who are you? We're visiting with someone, what do you do? We talk about what we do. We talk about our jobs, right? Who are you? Well, I'm the son or daughter of so-and-so, right? Who are you? Well, I, I'm, I'm a mother. I'm a father. These are my kids. Who are you? Well, this is my a position in the community. I serve on this committee or I help, uh, I, I have this role in our local government or something like that. Who are you? It can be a very simple question. It can be a very confusing question. It can be a pretty deep question, right? If you're really reflecting on it, if you really had to think hard about it and give the most honest answer you could, who are you? I remember when we moved from, or when I moved from Texas to Oregon, I was helping with a church plant in the Northwest. Now, now I'm from Texas, Central Texas. And so I, I remember one, one of my first experiences there, I was going through a drive-through, ordering food, and I got to the window and the lady said, had this quizzical look, and she said, you're not from around here, are you? And I said, no, how did you know? Because to a Texan, you know, this is just our accent, right? Now, you do have different accents around the state of Texas, but when you're, a, when you're a boy from a small town, you don't really know anybody's got any accents anywhere. You just know Texan, right? And it caught me by surprise because I didn't know the way I was speaking was conveying to her that I was not from the Northwest. And I remember early experiences just living in the dorms and being around other college students. Largely, they were from either the either California or Oregon or Washington. And we'd have these conversations and he'd say, you Texans are really proud of being Texans. And I said, of course. Why, why would we not be proud of me? I mean, aren't you proud to be Oregonians? And the answer was no, they were not. It was just always surprising to me. But, but how I saw myself and how others saw me, I let inform my own identity. Who are you? Not who are you according to others, not who are you according to your occupation, but who are you according to God? This is a very important question for the early church to answer. Peter, a lot of y'all know about Peter. Peter's pretty, he, he's kind of the point guy. Among the 12 disciples that walked on earth with Jesus, the 12 that he handpicked to kind of carry his mission forward, these 12 pretty ordinary, normal guys he invited into his ministry and gave them charge to lead it beyond his death and resurrection and ascension. Peter was kind of the leader of that group. Peter was, was known for being the one that would speak up, sometimes even saying too much. Peter was also known as the one who denied Jesus and the one that Jesus had to restore for future leadership. Peter's a pretty central figure in the New Testament. Later on in his life and ministry, after the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, Peter writes a couple letters, 1st and 2nd Peter. If you're doing our reading plan through the year, you read through 1st Peter this week. We're not getting into 2nd Peter. We're going to have to skip 2nd Peter and get on to other things next week. But I wanted to focus on this first letter from Peter. Peter is writing to a church that's persecuted. He's writing to a church that is struggling with the realities of being a Christian in an unfriendly land. And what Peter 
seems to emphasize at the center of this suffering is know who you are. I wonder why is that? Because who you are shows up when you're squeezed. Right? Who you are shows up when trouble comes. Who you are shows up when you're sick. Who you are shows up when there seems to be no hope, when there seems to be no direction. Who you are is who shows up when you've been, when you've been sinned against, when you've been betrayed. Who you are shows up in your weakest moments. You can't hide who you are when you're squeezed. Who you are is going to come out. And Peter's concerned about this because he knows they're being squeezed. That persecution is going to reveal what's on the inside of them to the outside world. Again and again, when you read through 1 Peter, you have this clear picture. Peter is concerned that the Christians know who they are so that when they go through persecution, what people see is Jesus. Because what did Jesus go through? Persecution. No person has ever been squeezed like Jesus. And what bled from Jesus was truth and grace. That's what John, one of his other disciples, says in, first, in John chapter 1. He says, this Jesus is full of truth and grace. When he was squeezed, that's what came out. And Peter wants to know that when these disciples are squeezed, what comes out of them looks like what came out of Jesus. Grace and truth. That's what he's concerned with. And he knows that how they respond to the troubles in their life is going to say something about who they are to the world around them. You can't hide an accent. Who you are is going to come out when you open your mouth. Sure, you may be able to fake it for a little while. But eventually, they're going to know. You must be from... You, you must not be from around here. That's the hope. Is that maybe over time people will begin to see in us something different. The people will begin to see in us when we go through our challenges and our difficulties, when we're squeezed, that we don't look like the way the rest of the world looks like when they're squeezed. When they're going through difficulty, you know, they lash out. They're hateful. They hold grudges, Right? They're vengeful. And you see it in every corner of the world that this is how people behave. And that's us too. But for the grace of God that in Jesus we see a man dying for others, forgiving his enemies. And we are called to look like that. And that is Peter's greatest concern. Is that we know who we are so that in the moment of our squeezing, what people see is Jesus. And because they see Jesus in us. They may glorify God on the day he visits. So who are we? Who are you? Not according to what other people say. Not according to your occupation. Not according to your role in the family. Not according to your accolades on the field or in the classroom. Not even according to who you think you are. But who are you according to what God says you are? Who is that person? Because in truth, who knows better than God? I don't know better than God. You don't know better than God. The person sitting next to you doesn't know better than God. No one knows who you are as good as God knows who you are. So let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and let's see what he has to say to us about who we are. 
Look with me first in verse 11. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. The first thing I think we got to get clear about who we are is we are not from around here. And you may say, well, wait a second, I am from around here. This is where I was born. Uh, maybe you've grown up, some of you have been born in Kennedy and grew up in Kennedy your entire life. You can say, if anybody can say I'm from around here, it's you, right? But that's not what we're talking about. Sure, you may have been born here, but what Peter's talking about is, but you have been reborn. And so your citizenship has shifted from this world to another world, from this kingdom to another kingdom. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, he says it like this. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Now what does that mean, word of God? A word is a message. The message of God. What is the message of God? The message, the logos, the word is a person. The word of God is reflecting the message told about Jesus Christ. He's saying it's through Jesus who is immortal that when we place our faith in him, we become immortal. Our old lives are dead. Our new lives have begun. We are no longer from here. We have been reborn into a new kingdom, in a new place. So if we're going to understand who we are, we have to begin there. We have to begin with our new birth into the family of God. Who are we? Well, first of all, we're not from around here. We're of a heavenly kingdom. Back up a little with me into chapter 2, verse 9. We get a series of other statements that are important for us to understand when we talk about who we are. We are, he says, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, and the people of God. Let me work through those very quickly. We are chosen people. You may walk in here today and feel rejected. Rejected by your family, rejected by your classmates, rejected at work. Rejected by who, who knows? Maybe you even look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I reject me. God doesn't reject you. God has chosen you. Like back in the day when you're on the playground and you're picking teams. And if you were like me, one of the slower ones, you didn't always get picked first, right? But you don't want to be the one that doesn't get picked at all, right? God has chosen you. Forget the order. He's chosen you. One way or another, you're on the team. He has chosen you. You're a royal priesthood. Now, we know from back in the day, the royal priesthood, they're very special people. They represented God to the people and people to God. They're the ones who went in and offered the sacrifices to God. They had, they had this special mission from God. And now Peter's saying, what used to be an exclusive club is now open to everyone who follows Jesus. You're all in on this. You're royal. What does that mean? It means by new birth, you are a son or daughter of a king, King Jesus. That's you. And you're a priesthood, meaning you have this kind of close relationship with God where you can go into his presence and you can tell other people about him and they can see him in you and you can tell them about him. This priestly role is now not reserved for a few, but for all who would call Jesus their savior. We are a holy nation. This goes beyond geographical boundaries. This idea of holy nation, in other translations, it will talk about a holy race. 
What is he saying here? He's saying that to be a holy race or a holy nation is to be a group of people who do not belong to themselves. When you are a part of a, an actual geographical nation, you know, you, you should, you know, see yourselves as a part of that bigger whole and seek to serve the best intentions of all. When we talk about a holy nation or, or a holy race, what, what Peter is pointing out is, is now you are a part of a nation, a people, a race, in which you do not any longer exist for yourselves. You exist for the greater whole. What holy means, it means to be set apart. We are set apart, not for ourselves, but now we are set apart unto God. Now our lives, our money, our time, our thoughts, our energies, all that we are now belongs to God. We are holy. We are set apart unto him. We are God's special possession. This may seem kind of silly, and it's a, it's a throwback, but I remember watching a Toy Story for maybe the first time, maybe the second time, and just thinking about all these toys. Have you seen Toy Story? Like everybody's seen it by now, right? It's like, what is it, like 20 or 30 years old? It's been around for a while now. But you, you get this idea that these toys probably would not mean much to anybody. Only a few are, are new and shiny and pretty awesome, like Buzz Lightyear. The rest of them have been around the block. They're getting kind of worn out, right? What made them important was when you picked them up and you looked at their foot underneath, what does it say? Say it with me. What does it say? Andy. Oh, man, yes, we're Toy Story fans. Okay, right. Yeah, we're tracking. Those toys belong to someone. That's what made them valuable. You belong to someone as a Christian, to God. I don't know about you, but, uh, but sometimes it's spring cleaning. You throw out the junk. You get rid of stuff you don't need anymore, right? But there is something so important that you say, this is my possession. I will keep it always. That's how God sees you. You are his special possession, never to be thrown away, never to be sold at a garage sale. You are his you mean something to him. You may feel like you don't mean much to anyone, which is probably untrue, but even if it were, if you could only mean something to someone, wouldn't you want to mean something to God? And you do. You are his special possession. You are the people of God. Some of us with pride or with shame, we can talk about our family history, talk about that family tree, who our parents are, who our grandparents are, who our great-grandparents are on either side. And we could go on and on, and maybe that, again, maybe that wells up a sense of pride in us because of the family lineage we have, or, or maybe it's a sense of shame in us, but, but we all, we're all a part of a people, all a part of some kind of family tree. And when we become the people of God, something fundamentally shifts in our heritage. The, the blessings are highlighted and the curses are overcome. Because now, before you were not a people of God, but now in Christ, you are a people of God. You are known by God. You are loved by God. Now, when we hear all this, if you're like me, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession, people of God, I just think, I don't deserve any of that. And I would be right to say that. I, in myself, don't deserve any of that, but... 
To finish out what Peter says in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Once you had not received that kind of mercy. At one time you got exactly what you deserved. And what you and I deserved from our sin is death and eternal separation from God. That is a lack of mercy. It's justice without mercy. And God would be right to bring justice without mercy on everyone. But Peter says, but that's not us anymore. That was us then. Now, he says, but now you have received mercy. And a lot of good uh, spy movies. I don't know if you like spy movies. I do. This is, I didn't mean for this to be a sermon talk on movies, but it just kind of happened that way. In good spy movies... You will have, you know, the, uh, the hero of the story go through trouble, often not of their own making, and they'll have to get a new identity to protect themselves temporarily from the trouble that they're in, right? And you'll have someone who's willing to risk themselves to get that identity for them. Passport, driver's license, birth certificate, whatever. They go through the trouble and the danger of helping that hero form a new identity. Here now is who you are. It's all surface level. But the gospel story has some connections to that that's worth pointing out because, because in Jesus we have this new identity. But it's not temporary. It's eternal. We have this new identity. And it's not to get us out of the trouble others have made for us. It's to get us out of the trouble we've made for ourselves. We have this new identity. And it was brought to us not through someone risking themselves to get us that new identity, but through someone dying, literally giving all that they giving up their life for us, that we might have this new identity. That is what Christ has done for us. He has fundamentally and forever changed who we are. My encouragement to you this morning is live in light of that. Set aside those voices, whether they're coming from you or from somewhere else that tries to define who you are outside of God and focus on the word of God where he tells you who you are, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, the people of God. Let's pray. Father God, without you, we would be so lost. We would have no idea who we are. We might think we know, but we wouldn't know. throughout history and time you have been working to show us who we are and it's a beautiful thing because who we are in you is better than we could ever imagine to be on our own that Christ has gone through the great trouble of giving his life to change our identity that we may become sons and daughters of the living God. And may others see in us, when, when life squeezes us, may they see that identity. May they see Jesus, full of grace and truth, oozing out of us. And they may say of us, I don't really know who they are, but I can tell you this, they're not from around here. Because in Christ we have been reborn into a new kingdom. Help us, Father, through the work of your spirit and through the truth of your word to live 
out of that new identity. We pray it in the name of Jesus.